What a wonderful potluck meal. You know, I've got to be honest, I've not really been big on potlucks most of my life, but I hadn't had one of y'all's potlucks. Y'all have convinced me. Man, that was good. I didn't even get to sample everything. There was so much stuff. I come around the corner and I looked and there was a table and that's what I expected. And then there was another table and then desserts was way over in the corner, just a lot of stuff. So much fun. What an enjoyment today has been and still continues to be that we're able to be back together and study more of God's Word. So recently, Don and I were talking with Josh. We were discussing the idea of this sermon and we were discussing how we were going to go about it. And it was, it was thought between us that this might come good coming from the eldership because it's something that's important to Don and I that we do things decently and in order. And I know that it's important as well to all of you. I know that you want to do things by God's Word because that's the kind of people you are. You want to adhere to God's Word as much as possible. And this is one way that we can do that is to study and learn more about God's plan for us as we come together and worship. Now, to go in conjunction with this, coming up very soon, and some of you may have heard about this already, we're going to be having a men's training class, and we're going to train and learn how to do the aspects of worship. And most of you are seasoned Christians, and you've been participating in the acts of worship for many years. That's not what we have in mind. What we have in mind is we're a fairly new congregation. We've been together just a, a short period of time. We've got a new facility. It's different than the one that we worshiped with or in in the past. So we've got to decide things that are expedient about how to go about the Lord's Supper and the timing to do things. And the guys in the sound booth have done a fantastic job putting the things on the screen and letting us know as we're going through the worship what's next and, and the order that it comes in. And we can use that as a tool. But when we finish this sermon, then Danny, as part of his deacon work, is going to start to schedule a training class and all of us men are going to meet and we're going to do a lot like you ladies have been. We're going to have finger foods and some good things to eat and then we're going to go through the acts of worship and we'll do that uh, two or three times or however long that takes until we get comfortable with, uh, with how we go about our worship and I think you'll see some improvements and you'll see some smoothness and some things that will happen that come out uh, well. I guess one thing y'all ladies are probably thinking is who's going to make the finger foods? Well, each house will have to figure that out. So, as we get started this morning, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon. Don and I are going to split the sermon. I'm sure you saw that in the, in the announcements. And Don, being the seasoned preacher that he is, I'm going to let him work the PowerPoint from where he's at. So he's put a PowerPoint together for us, so he's going to be working it from over there, and I'm just going to go on with my part, part of the sermon. And then he's going to come in and do the second part. I told him last night, it's like when we studied about Jesus turning water into wine, we're going to save the best for last and, and let Don come on. So us being a new congregation, we've only been together for a number of weeks, and that's forced us to think about how we worship in this new building. The situation is a little different in here. The aisles are different. The stage is different. You notice we have the Lord's Supper table on the stage here. We haven't done that before, but it seems to work quite well. So it caused us to think that we need to get together and study more about this. So Don and I decided that we would do a very practical lesson on worship, what worship is and how it works, and things that we need to be remember, remembering or reminded of of, about worship so that's what we're going to do worship edifies us it brings us joy it strengthens us and it, it encourages us how many of you have ever felt tired when you got home from work and you're tired and you think oh, i've still got to get a shower i've got to put clothes on or you're up really late maybe with a child or a job or something that you do on a saturday night and you're really late getting in and you think i'm just so tired i'd like to sleep in or i'd like to stay here but you forced yourself to go ahead and come and you came to worship and the experience that you had, have you ever thought, well, I was really glad that I came? I know, I know we've had that experience. I definitely have. 
it's, it's good that we can come together and worship together. Worship is almost like a clinic. It rebuilds, it fortifies and ensures things that we know that we need to keep in mind. It helps our spiritual health. It strengthens us and we spend most of our week around the world. And that can be very discouraging at times depending on who your co-workers are or the environment that you work in or the things that you experience on a daily basis. But worship, worship service is a time to be with those of like precious faith. So we understand why the Hebrew writer wrote, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of others, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as we see the day approaching. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. But not only is worship important to us, even more so it's important to God. It's a subject that He's given a lot of emphasis to in the Scriptures. The word worship in, in one of its forms is mentioned 191 times in the Bible, 113 in the Old Testament and 78 in the New Testament. So it's certainly something that is important to God and He wants us to feel the importance of when we come together and worship that is something that He is present, He's viewing, He desires our worship and it's something that He wants to have forefront in our thinking. Now if we're going to profit at all from a study about worship today, one of the things that we have to do is understand what worship is and what worship is not. So that's what we're going to talk about here for the next few minutes. Let's define worship. Webster's Dictionary says worship is to adore, to pay divine honors to a deity. And that's Webster's. Webster's guys, they don't always know the spiritual things. They don't always get it right, but that one's pretty good. The Greek word for worship is the word, and I use blueletterbible.org to pronounce this word, so I didn't already know this word, so I looked it up. Blueletterbible.org helped me. The Greek word is proskunio. Now, y'all don't know if that's right or not, so we're going to go with it right. <laughs> Literally, the word means to kiss toward. It means uh, to, to do obeisance, which is another word that's hard to pronounce. But it means to prostrate, one's, prostrate oneself, to pay homage to, and to show deep respect to. So as we come together and we worship, that's what God's expecting. He's expecting us to humble ourselves. He's expecting us to pay homage. He's expecting us to pay respect to Him, and that's what we're to do when we come together and worship. We have a good picture definition of worship in Matthew 4. And you all know this story. When Satan came to Jesus and he tempted Him, he was trying to tempt Him with things of the world that He put before Him. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And He says, if thou wilt fall down and worship Me. Can you picture the scene? I know you've thought about this, this encounter before as you've heard sermons on it, studied about it. But have you ever thought and pictured the scene of what that might have looked like? Satan himself with our Lord showing him the things here in this world. And He says, I'll give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship Me. Can you imagine what Satan is wanting at this point? He's wanting Christ to fall down in front of Him and treat Him as one that's worthy of honor. Satan himself desiring honor from the Christ. He's wanting Him to pay tribute to Him as a great one. But what did Jesus respond to Him? How did Jesus respond to Him? And what did He say? Jesus said in verse 10, He said, Get thee behind Me, Satan, or get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou worship. God is the only one that's deserving of worship. So when we read Matthew 8 and 2, 
that a leper came to Christ and worshipped Him, and He was not prevented. He came to Christ and worshipped Him. What would that lead us to believe? Well, it shows us that Jesus is God. Jesus is also God because He allowed the leper to worship Him. We see that in Acts 20 and 28. The elders are told to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Speaking of Christ. John 1, 1-4, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word... In the beginning... Let me read that again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's speaking of Jesus. In John 20, verses 28 and 29, and Thomas answered, this is Thomas speaking to our Lord, he said, My Lord and my God. So it's obvious from these examples that Jesus is also our Lord and He's deserving. He's our God. He's deserving of our worship. Now to understand worship, we have to understand how the Bible describes worship. And the Bible gives us four different types of worship. Some of those worships are acceptable and some of them are not. So we have to understand what acceptable worship is to be able to know what kind of worship that we are to present to our God. Ignorant worship is the first one we're going to talk about. Now if we're leaving the building out here, we're in the parking lot, and one of you says to the other one, I think you're ignorant. How would you feel about that? It would be an insult, right? So there's a difference in the way the Scriptures use the word ignorant than the way we tend to use it in our society. Our society uses ignorant as a word that's derogatory, but... In the Scriptures, it's, it's a descriptive word. It describes an individual that doesn't understand or doesn't know something. And we see that here whenever we look at Paul in Acts 17 and 23 when he went to Mars Hill there in Athens. Apparently, Mars Hill was a spot where people gathered to discuss interesting ideas. Verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's all they did all day. They wanted new information or to learn new things. Verse 22 and 23 says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are too superstitious. For as I passed by, I beheld your devotions. I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. They were worshiping this unknown God in ignorance. So whenever we see people worshiping in an incorrect way, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that they don't know the correct way. They're ignorant of the correct way to worship. They've chosen something different. In verse 30, it says this, the times of improper thinking, the times of improper characterization of God, the times, this is what it says, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now, what does it say? Call all men under repentance everywhere, or calls all men everywhere under repentance. So God winked at ignorance for a time being, but no more. He calls us to repentance now and He expects us not to be ignorant of how He desires to be worshipped. So we have to understand what that is. Could we be guilty of ignorant worship today? I mean, we're not like the Athenians. We're not worshipping an unknown God. But could we be guilty of it? I want to say sure. When people engage in acts that God has not asked for because they believe that that's what God wants, then that's ignorant worship. They're doing it outside of the Scriptures. The second type of worship we want to look at is vain worship. Matthew 15 and 9 says this, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So we can't come in here and teach doctrines of men. We've got to teach strictly from the Scriptures and, and doctrines that we find there. And they were worshiping in ignorance because they were teaching something that wasn't in the Scriptures. The vain indicates, the word vain indicates empty, uh, worthless, or meaningless. They had corrupted the true worship by adding their own commandments. 
These people, Jesus said, were worshiping with their lips and not their hearts. And verse 9 says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. And verse 7 says, These people were hypocrites. So their vain worship, drawing nigh to him with their mouth and not their heart, caused their worship to be vain. So, yes, yes, we could have vain worship. When we worship God with lips, but not our heart, that becomes vain. God doesn't accept this type of worship. It's obvious by these scriptures. Do you think worshiping in vain when we sing all to Jesus, we surrender, and then don't give as we've prospered would be vain worship? What do you think if we sing, Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer, and then we don't come back on Sunday night or Wednesday night and we don't put Him first? Do we really think about the words as we sing the songs, as we gather together and worship? Because we're supposed to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so those words mean something. So when we gather together and sing these things, do we think about that? And do we make our worship different than what God would hope it to be because we do different than the words that we're singing? The next type of worship we'll look at is will worship. This one's a little bit different. If we look at Colossians 2 and 23, if you back up into verse 22 about the middle of it, and start reading, it says, According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. This is will worship. When we have a self-imposed religion and we're using commandments and doctrines of men, we might say that Cain was an example of this type of worship. He offered to God what suited him and not what God requested. This might be the most popular type of worship today. Our society is so big on the entertainment factor. All we have to do is look on social media and see how many of our neighbors and friends worship. The things that they bring into worship and how they go about it, it's not doctrinal. They don't find it there. But even with our own brethren... If we look at what some of them are doing, we can understand that. And we're not the church police. We're not trying to look and see what they're doing, but we can certainly see that. And we understand that what we read in the Scriptures is how we're supposed to follow, but are they? Are they humming? Are they making instrument noises during the song services? Are they singing during the Lord's Supper? Do they tend to offer worship in a way to make it more contemporary with hand clapping and chanting and different things that they add in or playing music as they're coming in to be seated? Do you find that in the Scriptures? If not, it's trying to be contemporary and it's trying to be enticing and it's trying to be in a way that they're trying to draw folks in, but are they teaching the truth when they get there? Remember that God's way is the best way, but not only is God's way the best way, it's the only way, the only way that we can be pleasing to God when we come together and we worship. The fourth one that we want to talk about is true worship, and this is the one we're aiming for. This is what we're working toward, and this is what we hope to always have is true worship. John 4 and 23 says that God seeks those true worshipers to worship Him. That's what He desires. And now there are three aspects of true worship. There's the object of worship. There's the attitude in worship. And then there's the acts of worship. First, the object of worship, we've already seen that the object has to be God. The only acceptable one to worship is God. John 3 and 23 says... God is seeking true worshipers to worship Him. Secondly, there is the attitude of our worship. What kind of attitude do we have when we come together here and we worship? John 4 and 24 says that our worship must be in spirit. That means that our heart and our mind both must be engaged. If we're worshiping in spirit, it can't just be one of those two. It has to be both. We've got to engage our heart and our mind. Sometimes we sing the words and sometimes we say amen to the prayers and sometimes... Our mind is everywhere except where it should be. 
When I'm preaching this part, I'm preaching to myself. I've struggled with these things too. Busy running a business, you've got all these things to think about and all these things you want to do. It only takes a couple of seconds for a distraction to cause your mind to drift. I've done it a lot. So don't think I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching with you because I'm hearing this myself. Mentally, we may have been off somewhere else, but the text says that God is a spirit and indeed our worship to Him should be spiritual. When we can transition and focus our mind in that way, I've got an idea that a lot of the distractions in worship will fade away. Now, I've not seen this here at this congregation, so don't misunderstand me when I say these examples, but I've seen people on their phones surfing around on Facebook while we were at worship. I've seen them on Amazon ordering things, and I've seen them looking on websites and different things. If they're doing that, they're really not engaging in a spiritual way. They're not worshiping in spirit. And you know what? When I was thinking about this sample, I was watching what they were doing. You think I was worshiping in spirit at that moment? I wasn't. My spirit had left worship to pay attention to what they were doing. So who's at fault there? I would say both of us were a little bit, them for doing it and me for noticing it. So when you're doing things that's distracted in the congregation, you're hurting yourself, but you might be hurting those around you. But even at that, I'm going to speak to those that was in the place that I would be at that time. There's going to be distractions. We have to be able to focus our mind and we have to be able to think about the worship that's before us and what God expects. He doesn't expect us to watch somebody surf on Facebook. That is distracting, by the way, when you see them flipping through that and do that. I don't know how you could not notice it, but you have to refocus and regather. And when you learn that true worship is in spirit, then you know that you have to control your spirit and your focus, and the burden is on you to ignore those things. Thirdly, true worship requires the proper acts, the acts of worship. John says that we must worship God in spirit, but not only in spirit and in truth. In truth means by what He has specified in the Bible, in the New Testament. If it's not there, we can't engage in it and we can't call it worship. God has specified five acts or avenues of worship. And these five things that He said that we can have in worship. Prayer. Preaching. The Lord's Supper, because after all, that's why the early church gathered. The early Christians gathered to take the Lord's Supper together. The offering, taking up collection. And the singing. Anything other than these five acts is not worship. Sometimes people talk about the worship service and they think everything that happens or takes place in the worship service from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. is worship, but it's not. It's not so. The announcements are not worship. We do that. It's an expedient thing that we do at the time that we need to convey information. It's not worship. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of other things that might take place during that worship period that is not worship. We can't pick and choose what is worship, and we don't get to decide. God has prescribed these five things, and that's all that He has prescribed. So this ends my portion of it. I'm going to turn it over to Don and let him pick up where I ended. Is it right to improve our worship? Yes. Anytime we come before God, we want to offer our best to Him. Again, Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of of praise to God. Now listen to this part. That is the fruit of our lips. What we offer verbally in our singing and our prayers, the Bible calls that a sacrifice. That is our modern sacrifice. We don't slay an animal or uh, shed the blood of a lamb. Today, it comes from the sacrifice that we engage in in worship. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 8, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were not giving to God their best. In fact, um, when Malachi writes to them, he says, 
you offer the blind as a sacrifice. Is this not evil? What they would do is they would find a, a lamb in their flock, and he was blemished. He wasn't worth selling, and so maybe he's blind or he's injured in some way, and they would say, I'll give that to God. That'll be my sacrifice. What's the point? They did not give the Lord his best, their best. And the Lord asked the question, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Listen to this next line. Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased? Would he accept it favorably, says the Lord of hosts? That is, your governor's not going to take this. You can't offer this to a secular ruler and think he's going to be okay with it. And yet, you offer inferior worship to God. So, when we come in the presence of God, we want to give him our very best. Now, does it matter how we go about enhancing our worship? Of course it matters. We are not going to be doing some things that Larry alluded to modern innovations that many churches are doing. We will not have praise teams. We're not going to have female speakers, which is very trendy in our society. We're not going to be singing during the Lord's Supper. We're not going to be using instruments. We're not going to, to be doing only... Uh, fluffy, soft preaching that makes everyone leave feeling good. But we do want to do some things that are right and practical to enhance our worship. When we come before God in worship, we want to make it the best that we can for the sake of honoring Him. And a poor worship service not only shows disrespect to God, but it hurts us. And it hurts the uh, growth of a congregation. If people come in to visit and the singing is just dragging and people don't seem like their hearts are in it, that's not the kind of place that people want to come back to. So I'm going to make some very, very practical observations here. Yep, there's the other verse I forgot to put up. I'm going to get back here where I can see the PowerPoint so that I won't do that again. All right, the first thing I want to talk about is our singing. The song leader is the one who sets the tone for worship, no pun intended by that, but the song leader immediately is going to get us in the right mindset. The song leader is going to, uh, would do best to try to coordinate his songs with the sermon. And so he might uh, send the preacher a text the night before and say, what are you preaching on tomorrow? So that he can um, make the two coordinate. Um, that helps direct our minds. It gets us thinking in the right direction. The next thing... Try to keep the songs moving. This is so important. Do not drag when you're song leading. Sometimes the congregation will drag you down, but you are the leader. Keep the songs moving. There is nothing worse than singing uh, a song about heaven that's happy and making it sound like you just don't want to go there. And sometimes that's the way it is. Sing with enthusiasm. I would say minimize songs that we don't know. There is a time and a place for learning new songs, but when everyone's gathered together for the worship service and we're doing our best to sing out and praise the Lord, it really zaps some of the enthusiasm out when we're trying to learn new songs as we go. Uh, we can have a special service at times to learn songs. Next, the song leader actually has a lot of control over the length of the service. And so... If the preacher goes excessively long for some odd reason or something takes place and the song leader was planning to lead all five verses 
of just as I am, he can sing the first and the last verse. And he can simply adjust accordingly. That is one of the things the song lead, a good song leader should do. Next, he needs to ensure... Oops, it's just lagging a little bit. He needs to ensure that the songs are scriptural. Now, what do we mean? This book that we have was put out by a member of the church who is very conscious and very conscientious to be sure there are not unscriptural songs in there. As far as I know, this book is solid. But any time a song leader is leading singing, he needs to be sure the songs are scriptural. Most songbooks have songs that are written by denominational people, and almost every songbook that I know of, except maybe this one, has certain songs that are not scriptural and should not be led. If we can't preach it, we can't sing it. The song leader himself needs to make sure that he doesn't become the focus of worship. Now, what do I mean by that? At times, I have been in places where I have seen the song leader, and he is up there, and he's getting with it. I mean, he is getting down. He's, he's nearly dancing, and it is very distracting. You can see that it, it has become about him. Don't be a showman while you're leading singing. And everyone should be singing. I don't know why it is, but over the years, as I have been in different congregations, I have always seen uh, at least one, sometimes multiple people will sit there and they do not sing. What about our prayers? Number one, prepare your prayers ahead of time. If you're going to be the one leading the prayer, there is nothing. I, I remember someone saying, well, I'm kind of embarrassed because I, take, I write my prayer out ahead of time. I think that's wonderful. You can list the names of the people that you need to mention. You can list specific things. Otherwise, we have the trap of just falling into what I call a canned prayer. Next, prayers do not have to be eternal to be immortal. Now, what's the point of that? A prayer does not have to be excessively long. You know, Matthew 23 and verse 14, Jesus said about the Pharisees that they said long prayers for pretense, to be seen of men. They thought it was impressive if they can say long prayers. Now, we're not accusing anyone of that, but sometimes prayers can get exceedingly long, and we need to be careful of that. When you pray, use terminology such as we pray. Father, we pray unto you instead of I pray. Why is that? Because we are all praying together. You are simply leading the minds of others, but this is a group prayer. So we pray, not I pray. Next, goes without saying, I think, but only men can lead prayers. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 is talking, in fact, the beginning of 1 Timothy 2, he says that God would have all men everywhere to be saved. The word for man there is aner, and it mean, or the word for man there is anthropos. It means humanity. He would have all of mankind to be saved. Then he says we have one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. But when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, specifically he says... I would have that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands to the Lord. When he uses the word for men there, it specifically is the word that means the male gender. If there are men who are present, men are to be leading the prayers. Next, 
it is not necessary to quote scripture in your prayer. Remember, you're speaking to God, and he wrote the scriptures. And so, uh, for example, a person might say, uh, Father in heaven, we know that you've told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and that he that is baptized shall be saved. It's not necessary to say that. Uh, quoting scripture is something that uh, we need to get out of the habit of doing in our prayers. Next, our prayers are not intended to impress mankind. Sometimes it seems like people uh, become very flowery, over-the-top, big, impressive words, and this is one of the problems that the Pharisees have. The prayer is not about the people. The prayer is about God. We need to remember that the Godhead is involved in our prayers. We direct our prayers to the Father. We know that the Son is a mediator for us. The Holy Spirit is an intercessor for our prayers. And it helps me, when I think about prayer, to envision that. I envision the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ at the throne of God during my prayers. And it makes me look at it in such a very serious way. We also need to keep in mind that all of us are praying. Think about that. It's not just the man who is praying. All of us are praying. So at the end, I can say, Amen. Why am I saying that? Because I'm saying this comes from my heart. The words he spoke, I agree with them. Literally, you're saying, so let it be. Amen. And one more, my life needs to be pure. That will help my prayers, public and private. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of what? A righteous man avails much. What does that mean? Righteous prayers are heard by God and impress Him. Psalm 66 and verse 18, David said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Your prayers will fall on deaf ears if you're living a sinful, wicked life. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, the Apostle Peter said, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, if you are the person who is presiding over the table, then you need to keep in mind the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Sometimes I hear people say, we're here to remember the death, burial, and resurrection. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are here to proclaim the Lord's death. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are going to be focused on the price that Jesus Christ had to pay for us. That's why we have the bread, which represents the body. That's why we've got the fruit of the vine that represents the blood. I need to know He did this for me. This is the sacrifice that was offered for me. This is the cost of my sin. We also need to examine ourselves. Now, I've heard people say some strange things. Make sure there's no sin in your life. That's not what he's talking about here in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. What he's talking about is they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. That is, they had made it into a common meal. I need to examine myself to be sure I'm doing this properly, that my mind is focused, that I'm thinking on the body and I'm thinking on the blood, because if I don't do it right, he says, I'm eating and drinking damnation to myself. 
The man who is leading the Lord's Supper needs to be sure that he allows time for people to focus and consider. When we're passing the Lord's Supper, this kind of takes care of itself, but particularly during the time that we were using the prepackaged cups, this could be a problem because he could move from one to the other in 30 seconds, and it takes me approximately two and a half minutes to get that little piece of paper off the top of those things. The person who is presiding over the Lord's table, the thoughts that he presents need to be related to this. He can quote Matthew 26 where the Lord uh, implemented the Lord's Supper. He can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul explains the Lord's Supper. He can go to um, a passage talking about the crucifixion. He can go to Romans chapter 5 where Jesus tasted death for us. By one man we're saved. But focus on that. It is not time for humor. It's not time for uh, silly stories because this is a very serious time to focus on the death of Jesus Christ. When it comes to our offering, also remember that this is a time that our minds now need to be focused on the offering. And so you can talk about the commands to give, 1 Corinthians 16. You can talk about the reasons that we give. You can talk about the fact that God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. You can talk about the fact that we don't need to be given for giving by a compulsion. All of these things that relate to giving in the Bible, but keep our minds focused on that topic. Preaching. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the preaching, but let me just say several things. Number one, Preaching should always have dignity. And I think we know what we mean when we say that. Preaching never apologize for the Word of God. I have seen preachers that want to soft soap or apologize. I'm sorry if this offends you. How dare we get up and apologize for what God has said? Next, preach the whole counsel of God. I know many don't want to hear it. I know it's offensive to many. But we have to do that if we're going to be pleasing to the Lord. Next, offer an invitation. It doesn't have to be a full-blown gospel sermon, but at least at the end of the sermon, say, we want to have an opportunity. If anyone needs to respond and get your life right with God, you've got the opportunity to do that. Now, why would you not extend the Lord's invitation? Maybe there's someone who just needs that little bit of nudging to come forward and get their life right. Be respectful of time. Particularly on Sunday mornings, we have Bible class after the sermon. And if the preaching goes excessively long, we bite into time for Bible class. And many teachers have prepared, and I've heard preachers, or teachers at times say, I couldn't get through my Bible class because of this. So be respectful of the time. Wednesday night, the Wednesday night invitation, we're using men to do that. An invitation should have one point. If a person starts and they say, I've got four points tonight, I just think, oh no. <laughs> we just had a class. We just had a 45-minute lesson. The invitation is simply an opportunity to invite. And an invitation should do that. It should be something that invites. You're not going to do a lesson about social drinking during the invitation. Mainly, it's an opportunity to say, Here's a thought from the Scripture. Here's something to direct your mind. If you want to get your life right, you can do it now. 
it needs to be short. We are asking that it be five minutes or less. And this is the last thing that I want to mention is reverence. This applies, of course, not only to the one who is leading, but I want you to just consider this yourself. I want you to ask yourself some questions. If you were called before the great king, imagine we had a great king, and what if you were summoned and they said, the great king wants to see you, how would you behave? How would you speak to the king? So I'd be reverent. I'm not going to go in cracking jokes and being smart aleck. How would you dress when you went to see the great king? Where would your mind be when you went before the great king? Psalm 89 and verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and had in reverence by all them that are about him. The king, the great king, the king of the universe is who we are coming together to worship. I think that all too often we slip when it comes to our worship because we start thinking, this is about me. I didn't get anything out of it. I wasn't comfortable. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. And we forget that worship means to offer. It's a sacrifice. It's costing me something. This is me giving to God. And we want to maintain that reverential atmosphere here. I think we have it. I think we have got good, faithful Christians here who are working very diligently and very serious about being right with God. And we want to keep it on that track as we grow. I believe if we will preach the Word of God, Isaiah 55, 11 said, the Lord said, My Word will not return unto me void. If we will preach it, and we will be kind about it, and we will live it in our lives, the church here will grow. I appreciate y'all's attention. I appreciate the words that Larry had to say. And um, as I just got through saying, we always like to extend the invitation at the end of our service. And it could be we've got someone here now who needs to obey the gospel. If that is the case, we would be delighted to help you. The Bible teaches to become a Christian. One needs to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Maybe you want to study more on that. We would be delighted to talk with you. Maybe you're a Christian, but your life hasn't been right, and maybe at this time you want to come forward and make a public statement of repentance. We would be honored if we could go to God and pray on your behalf. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come. Together we stand and sing the invitation song.